Hi, everyone. It's me, Ben. Please enjoy this uh, lively interview with Jason Fuchs, who wrote a really good script that unfortunately was not picked up to series this year uh, called Big Thunder. It was written for Disney and ABC. Um, at the time of the recording, we didn't know the fate of Big Thunder, uh, so you'll, you'll notice that immediately. Um, but it's still very, it's a fun interview, and Jason had a lot of uh, interesting things to say about writing in various media. Um, he also wrote one of the um, Ice Age sequels, uh, so we talk about that a little bit, as well as his background and how he got into the business. And uh, he has some, some good things to say about the kind of work you kind of need to do before you make it or as you start making it. So I hope you enjoy this. Tomorrow, uh, we'll be releasing a bonus episode uh, with showrunner Callie Khoury, who created Nashville, who also wrote Thelma and Louise and some other movies and has directed some movies and television. Uh, it's Tomorrow's the Nashville finale on television, uh, so it's a good time to talk to Callie, and uh, I'll do a little intro for that tomorrow. But enjoy that interview with her. Uh, it's a, a bonus one as part of the Fast Company interviews that I did, Fast Company magazine made their list of 100 most creative people in business, uh, and numbers 77 through 83 included a bunch of television people whom I got to interview. It was a real treat. Uh, people like Callie, whom I had never spoken to before, people like Vince Gilligan, whom I have talked to a few times, and Liz Merriweather, folks like that. Uh, it's a pretty neat article. Uh, it was a lot of fun to do. Uh, all of these guys had really interesting things to say about writing and the business of writing. Uh, go to fastcompany.com to check out the full list uh, of the most creative people in business 2013, uh, as well as see excerpts of the interviews. Um, you can click on it right from their homepage, fastcompany.com. And as of today, the magazine should be on newsstands, so check it out. There's, there's really cool stuff in there. They did a great job pulling the list together. And um, Again, it's, it's the TV section I think is worthwhile for listeners of this podcast. I think you guys will enjoy it. If you enjoy television uh, and you enjoy that Fast Company article, and frankly, whether or not you enjoy the article, um, if you're in L.A., we still have tickets available for a benefit that we're doing in conjunction with Fast Company for 826LA. Uh, all of our live panels benefit 826LA, but we're doing a big one at Largo at the Coronet on June the 4th. That's a Tuesday, June the 4th. Um, and it, there's some awesome people involved. Uh, Vince will be there, Greg Daniels, Carlton Cuse, Liz Merriweather. Uh, we're also lining up some surprises for you that I think you guys will really dig. So June 4th, 8 p.m., uh, come and check it out. It benefits 826LA. Um, and uh, there are a few tickets left, not, not a ton, but it should be a really fun evening, uh, a good conversation, and uh, as I said, some, some surprises. Um, so check that out. The way to find out about tickets or to get tickets, go to largo-la.com. Uh, and hit the ticket link. Uh, you can also follow me on Twitter, at Ben Blacker. Uh, I will tweet about it often. And what you really should do is go to our Facebook page, facebook.com slash panel, and like that page where I will always put updates and stuff. And uh, I want to hear feedback from you guys. You know, we've had some great people on these panels, uh, and there are some really cool ones lined up. But I want to know who you guys want to hear from, uh, who you want to see on these panels, who you want to learn uh, from for about the craft of writing. Uh, so please drop me a line uh, on that Facebook page. I check it all the time. Uh, or, you know, hit me on Twitter or whatever, and uh, we'll try to get some people lined up who you guys want to see. Thank you, as ever, for listening to this, uh, and please enjoy this interview with Jason Fuchs. Don't forget to check in tomorrow for a bonus episode with Callie Corey. Now entering... Nerdist.com. It's the Nerdist Writers Panel on the Nerdist Podcast Channel. Ben Blacker talking writing with writers. Writers talking writing can get pretty exciting. The talk can be lightning. It's very, very frightening. Ben Blacker talking writing with writers. Yeah. Anyway, that said, yes. I loved your script. Thank you so uh, much. No joke. It was fantastic. You're the one. Come on. That's well, not true. My mom liked it. Um, Jason Fuchs is here. Hi. Hi. Um, seriously, the script is great. 
I keep calling it uh, Big Mountain. That's not what it's called. Well, it but I assume a, they'll do the soundtrack. The first draft was called Big Thunder Mountain. Okay. And then the studio gave us a note that they wanted to change to just Big Thunder. Oh, is it just which Big Thunder? I, it's, now it's just Big Thunder. Okay. Which I thought, I think sounds a little like a porn star. But they yeah they like it, and I've, I've warmed up to it. So it's, it's Big Thunder. Well, and it gets the, I mean, I get it. It's the corporate synergy thing. Yes. Like, we immediately associate that, well, first with porn stars. First and with then, porn stars. Yeah. Then with the Disneyland ride. But let's talk about the script, and then we'll kind of go sure. talk about some other stuff. But it's, it's, it's interesting to me, and I was having this conversation. It's actually come up quite a bit with other panelists and interviews that, like, it's bold right now to write an hour-long pilot with a central mystery. Because mm-hmm. uh, there's been a lot of failed attempts since this is Lost. Um, but I feel like the mystery in Big Thunder was handled so deftly. Uh, you know, it, it's foremost about the characters. And that's the thing that everybody loved about Lost, right? As we attach to the characters. How, how did you approach the script? How did, how did you even get the opportunity to write this? Well, I, I came to the project through both ABC Studios and Chris Morgan Productions simultaneously. But essentially what happened is Disney and ABC decided that they wanted to make more money. And so they were like, we, we have this theme park ride. We should totally make this a TV show. <laughs> so they... Natural. Uh, yeah. Which, by the way, that should, that should be the thing that motivates <laughs> any form of art. Sure. Um, so, no, so they were... They, I mean, they, they first approached Chris Morgan about it. And Chris Morgan, Fast and Furious, mm-hmm. amazing, talented writer, producer Chris Morgan, sort of said, I can do it, but I've got a lot of feature commitments. Let me sort of think about this in a year from now. And I think that as the season developed... Everyone saw the only real hit of this past season was Revolution, mm-hmm. as far as new shows go. And they, they wanted something sooner than later that was big and scopey and serialized and all the things that I sort of get excited about in television. And so they said, we got to do this fast. we got to do this now. Chris was still unavailable, but he said, well, I can exec produce this. Mm-hmm. I can exec produce it and co-create it and find someone to team up with. And that's how I got involved. Mm-hmm. So did, Chris, you, did you go and pitch a take? I did. I did. Well, like be a bunch of writers. Well, the, yeah, they met them. with a bunch of writers, and the thing is, they called me and said, "You know, do you, are you familiar with the ride?" And I said, "Not only am I familiar with it, I used to go on this ride like every summer. My family would take a trip to Disney, and this was my favorite ride with my dad. Right. But so which, by the way, was, was not true. I had not been on the ride. Not true. Yeah, I had never <laughs> been on Big Thunder because I don't like scary Hilarious. rides. And I know Big... No, you're smiling. But I know Big Thunder's not technically a scary ride. I have never been on it either. Great. There's lo- It's like a roller coaster. I don't like... Ro- I don't like anything where there's lots of crazy movements. And I remember one time having to go on the Twilight Zone ride at uh, t- sure. you know, Tower of Terror. Yeah. That was like my nightmare. I've spent my entire life hoping not to be stuck in an elevator that plummets 13 stories. So I was... I never You're lining my, up for the chance. I never understood why people were lining up to pay to do that and then also be charged for a $14 photo of their... Like, here's the moment where you were most terrified. We did this to you. Give us fourteen fifty, and we will record it. Right. So I, I had never been on Big Thunder, so I, I lied and said that it was a, a very special ride to me and then quickly did my research and figured out what the heck this thing was. Oh, my God. Um, but all that they said to me was, we're looking to do something that incorporates the elements of the ride. Mm-hmm. What yeah. what are I mean? Did you go? Have you been on it? Since? I have been on it. Since. Okay, I actually we did once. I had once I'd gotten the job, we did a Disneyland day. Nice. Where we went, me, Chris Morgan, a couple people from Chris's company, Adam Fishbach, who essentially runs things there for, on the TV side, uh-huh. and uh, ABC's people. We all went and did a morning Hilarious. at Big Thunder in Frontierland, and I actually they were so nice when we went there. You know, they let us ride it over and over, and it's kind of hard to say no when they're offering you to ride. <laughs> so I ended up going on it about six or seven times. Oh, my God. Which was, a, I don't, it's a terrible idea for anyone to do that, but particularly for someone like me. And I, I woke up the next morning, literally the next morning, and my girlfriend said, could you grab something for me? And I said, sure. And I got out of bed, and the room was spinning. Oh, no. And I, this is true. I came down with a case of what's called benign positional vertigo. Where for, for two weeks, literally two weeks, the room was spinning, which no one, unless you're, you know, 95, you don't get, it just doesn't happen to 27 year old oh people. So I, I, yeah, I gave myself vertigo. Fantastic. That's the level of commitment I Absolutely. had to this project. You bring that to every project. I, I do. I try, I try to get myself sick <laughs> on everything I work on. So no, they, they came to me with the general, you know, the notion of doing a big thunder mm-hmm. drama. And the only kind of constraints, they said, we want it to be 8 o'clock family hour viewing. Mm-hmm. We, lo- we love the notion of it feeling a little mm-hmm. bit like a companion piece 
in DNA, if not scheduled, to Once Upon a Time. Sure. And figure it out. And the thing about the Big Thunder ride, unlike you know Pirates of the Caribbean, is there's not a lot there. That's what I was going to ask. So you you did eventually take the ride and imagine did some research. As well. I actually but went on YouTube before I when I, okay. I went on the ride once I booked it, but to sort of build the pitch, I went on YouTube and you can kind of ride. Okay. The ride so what there. were the elements you took out of there? Um, again, I've never. So been this on is this is curious. what I this is from what I understand. <laughs> it's a western. It's in a mine. There's a goat chewing a stick of dynamite. And that, no, quite, listen, Big, Big Thunder actually has a slightly more developed mythology that we were instructed we didn't have to use. Oh, interesting. Um, but the basic idea is it's, a, it's a, a mind train gone crazy. It's possessed somehow. It runs every 15 minutes for the last 100 years, and no one knows why. And it's based in a mountain where there was some kind of big gold rush back in the 1850s in the mythology of the ride. Mm-hmm. And uh, since then, it's been cursed by Indians, and all kinds of bad, scary stuff happens. And the, there's no humans in the ride. You know, there's no real, right. there are no real characters other than this one goat that everyone remembers. There's a goat when you come over a crest that's sitting there chewing on a stick of dynamite, and everyone remembers that. And so, kind of all they said was, make sure the goat's in there, <laughs> and the goat is in there. Yeah, the, the goat's role has sort of evolved over the course of the, over the course of development. <laughs> well, but, negotiations, I would imagine. It's hard, you know what it's like. We tested a lot of goats, <laughs> um, and that was it. So it was, it's kind of the dream situation. As a writer, because you come in and you have a property that mm-hmm. the studio and the network are already excited about and have a little bit of a vested interest in, in seeing do well, but it's such a it's such a blank mm-hmm. canvas because there's just there's not a lot there. But that also means that you know there wasn't a very specific target. I mean, you so did you have to circle around it for a while, or was it you know from that initial pitch they knew you were the guy? What did you bring to that initial pitch? Uh, I basically brought to the initial pitch the story of the show. I mean, I wanted it really badly. I want, I, first of all, I really wanted to work with Chris Morgan, who I'm obsessed with and a huge fan of. I really wanted to, to get into TV, which I, I don't have a lot of experience in. And so I took it pretty seriously when they said, we're going to give you a preliminary meeting. I kind of went, all right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to come in and be the most overprepared guy on earth. Sure. And if I look a little, a little nerdy, that's okay. But I, I came in with a pretty developed pitch about what I wanted the story to be, mm-hmm. uh, and also about what the secret of Big Thunder is, which is sort of that, that central mystery that mm-hmm. sustains the show. I wanted them to feel like I had I had a reason for why these supernatural happenings were going to happen in this this mining town in the, in the West. So, and we went from there and sort of slowly fleshed out characters and fleshed mm-hmm. out the story, you know, between Chris and myself. Mm-hmm. And then we went and pitched it to studio. Studio hopped on board pretty quickly Great. and pitched it to network and network bought it in the room, which is the first time that's ever wow. happened to me. Yeah. Fantastic. Which I attribute largely to Chris being in the room. <laughs> <laughs> well, it seems like you really had your ducks in a row, too. I mean, this wasn't some... Vague notion. No, we had, we had a very we had a very clear idea of what the pilot was going to be, who mm-hmm. our lead characters were going to be, and what the overarching mythology was going to mm-hmm. be. And we were very you know we were very conscious conscious of making it feel like it had the DNA of a Lost, mm-hmm. making it feel like it had the fun of an Indiana Jonesy mm-hmm. Spielbergy For adventure, sure. but at the same time making sure the mythology didn't push out you know a character. Yeah. Uh, which I don't know how successful or not successful we were. We'll find out very soon. Sure. Talk to me about uh, tone in this script. Uh, yeah. The tone was really interesting, and it felt like a you know Disney Sunday night uh, movie from the '60s. Like it had that totally. It had that family friendly vibe, as mm-hmm. you say, like they were looking for. But you nailed it. Um, and you know, it's it's a tone that you know everything goes so dark right now. Uh, and it's really the opposite. Like, it's a family show. It's a fun show. It has that Indiana Jones vibe, which, you know, could get dark, but it's still so much fun. Like, it's never scary, I should say. Uh, I think the, the goal of the tone was, like you said, 8 o'clock family hour for sure. But I grew up falling in love more with movies and TV. Mm-hmm. And so for me, it was trying to bring something that felt like a big Indiana Jonesy feature. And specifically in terms of tone, I think a Temple of Doom. Um, because I, I, although it's not quite as dark and scary as that is, I feel like that's the, definitely the darkest of those three films Mm -hmm. and the scariest. And the script was heavily impacted by that. I mean, right down to, you know, crazy mine car chases, which I'm sure you got to. (laughs) So no, and I I think the the big influences were less the, less the Disney 60 movie, uh, movies from the Mm sixties, which I love, but just didn't have as big an impact on me growing up. Like I'd seen them, but I saw them when I was actually older. Mm -hmm. So I didn't, I I wasn't as affected by them as a, as a writer. Uh, but those Indiana Jones movies really affected me and quite frankly, Lost really affected me. Lost, I was never really a TV guy. 
uh, at least on the drama side. You know, I watched half-hour comedies and grew up in love with, you know, Seinfeld and Curb Your Enthusiasm. Mm. But on the drama side, it was really stuff like Lost and the J.J. Lindelofi, Kurtzman Orsi sort of overarching mythology-driven shows that got me excited about television as a viewer, Mm -hmm. or dramatic television as a viewer, and that made me want to do it on the writing side this season. So that those those were the the major influences in terms of how we built this. Interesting, but you're right. It's it's a it's a really it's a really tough balance of how much do you reveal, how much do you hold back, how much can you give, and you know, still not sort of you know ruin everything, but still make sure it's a satisfying journey. And it's it's tough. It's mm-hmm. tough. You got to really sort of think about it. Was there uh, take us inside a little bit of those discussions that you had uh, when you guys were fleshing out what this pilot would be, who these characters would be. Um, you know, there must have been stuff that you had to fight for or stuff that didn't quite fit that maybe you guys, you know, wrong avenues that maybe you went down. Um, yeah, I mean, we, I have to say, it was a fairly blissful development process. That's great. Um, I, I've seen ugly development processes. This was a, this was a fairly smooth Well, you've one. been in features. I have been in features. <laughs> I have been in features. It's a very different bag in features. We'll it, talk about that in a minute. It was a pretty smooth development process, and that was uh, in no small part by virtue of how late we sold the show. We, I pitched the show in late October, and we had, to have, we had to have a draft in by end of December, which in some senses is crazy and not a healthy way to write something, but in other ways is awesome yeah. Because it sort of it drains the process of unnecessary rewriting. Absolutely. Um, and although there was a significant amount of rewriting and a significant amount of notes and you know largely really positive constructive stuff, mm-hmm. because of because of the time frame and the time constraints we were working with, it streamlined everything. And so we, we knew we didn't have time to really ponder and sort of discuss too much. Uh, but certainly the the big discussions were tone. Mm-hmm. How do we make this something that feels appropriate for eight o'clock family hour viewing? but also is dark enough and has enough of that JJ-ish DNA that we get the fans who, you know, watch Revolution and watch Lost and stuff mm-hmm. like that. And the second question was, how much mythology is too much mythology? How soon is it too soon to reveal? How how long can we go without telling you secrets? Mm-hmm. And I think that, you know, Lost probably, I mean, Lost is a show that I'm obsessed with. I think a lot of fans of Lost got frustrated with how long it took to unravel some of the mythology. Sure. Um, and I think Revolution... Uh, is a show that's done a good job of un- unraveling or unveiling stuff sooner mm-hmm. than later. Uh, and we're definitely going to try to use that model, I think, where we're, we're hopefully going to give you lots of good juicy pieces of the mythology early while saving some big reveals for uh, for, for later seasons. Terrific. Uh, and then also, I mean, going back to that Indiana Jones thing, yeah. this script is so made up of fantastic set pieces. Uh, and I'm thinking specifically about that opening. Uh, was that there from the beginning? Was that something you guys got to? The the opening that for people who haven't read the script, which is everyone on Earth, uh, <laughs> the the opening where Big Thunder kind of, we have a prologue set in the town of Big Thunder, where I won't give it away, but something sort of extraordinary yeah, happens. I'm gonna get to see it. We, we we don't know that. We can. Be I love your con- I love your confidence. Uh, <laughs> but uh, yeah, that was that was the part of the initial pitch. Really? Part of, well, because I, That's great. I, I think part of it is because I'm from the feature world, mm-hmm. and so when you pitch a feature, it's so set piece driven. Yeah, uh, as far as the pitch goes, certainly. And I think that's probably less true a little bit on the on the TV side. But for me, I, I pitched this like I was pitching a big, gigantic feature, which of course means I wrote a pilot that would have cost you know four hundred million dollars to <laughs> to actually. And that was our that final budget, by the way, four hundred. <laughs> Four hundred million. I was actually going to ask about that. I mean, it's an ambitious pilot, and there were a lot of ambitious pilots this year, so it's not unusual. But you know, was budget something that you guys had to think about? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Although I will say that in in the initial draft, the mandate was just write the best version of this pilot that you can write, so that network can see what this can be. Mm-hmm. And then, if we actually want to make this thing, let's sit down and figure out how to make it. Right. Uh, and I'd say the the. The biggest part of effectively making something that looks featurey and scopey on a TV budget uh, has been Rob Bowman, our director. Oh, he's great. It's, uh, we got, on our first day of shooting on this pilot, Rob had gotten 22 shots done by lunch. Uh, and each one of them, like, more beautiful than the next. So we, we had a really phenomenal... Rob, Rob did an amazing job shooting it, and our director of photography is a guy named Jeff Kimball, who Jeff, uh, Jeff DP'd Top Gun, and oh true, he's 110... <laughs> and he is the most talented, cool. He actually wears an Indiana Jones hat on set. That, of course, not kidding. And it's just that con- Rob has this amazing, frenetic, crazy, psychotic energy, and Jeff has this very cool, calm, like seen it all, done it all thing happening. And that tandem 
really combined to give us an incredibly cinematic, featurey, expensive look mm-hmm. uh, for a, a lot, you know, a lot, a, less, a lot less than it should have cost. Yeah. Listen, I, to me, it feels like there's. First of all, I love westerns, mm-hmm. and I know there's a couple. I know Six Gun is in development mm-hmm. over at NBC, which is a great script. I, I really love that. I hope that goes too. I feel like there's. I feel like there's space for a great American western with a supernatural twist, especially. Yeah. Um, one of my favorite Twilight Zone episodes is always there's an early episode of Twilight Zone. It was a supernatural western. What was that? I don't, I don't know. That it's like I've the seen third that or one. fourth episode is a drunk shooter who used to be like the fastest, fastest gun in the West who suddenly can't shoot. Mm-hmm. And a mysterious man comes to town and gives him his ability to shoot back, but for a purpose. <laughs> and I, I just remember thinking that was the coolest thing. And, and I know that there were some haters of, you know, cowboys and aliens, but I, I thought that was a cool movie. I really did. And so, for me, the chance to do that in the TV space is, is exciting, and I hope, I hope there's space for us. Mm-hmm. Well, what I'm hearing you say is the big secret is aliens. That's all I'm taking from this. It is aliens. Um, <laughs> big thunder is aliens. Tell me about getting notes from the network, from, you know, Disney. Yes. How is, how is it different than feature notes that you've received? Because you've worked, you've written a number of features, right? I've written, I've written a handful of features. Uh, the, mm-hmm. notes are, the notes are actually fairly similar. Mm-hmm. The notes are fairly similar. And what kind of notes do you tend to get? Make it better. <laughs> less, a little broad. Less horrible. The stuff we hated have less of. The stuff we loved potentially consider doing more of. <laughs> and also, also, do you have Simon Kinberg's contact info? It's a big note I get. Uh, no, the, the note process differs from studio to studio, network to network, I would imagine. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the notes are extremely, extremely similar in terms of form. You know, when you're working on a feature, you're dealing with a production company in a studio, and you the script will go to the production company first. They'll, you'll do your producer's pass, then it'll go to studio. On the TV side, it sort of it parallels that, where things will go to your studio first, and then go to your network second. Mm-hmm. So you're always dealing with kind of two waves of notes um, in ascending order of of importance and impact. Uh, but the the notes are the notes from ABC were great. I mean, the the executive who who bought this thing was a real genre guy. He was someone who loves this material, really, you know, ate and breathed this kind of stuff, was a huge fan of Lost. And so the the notes, generally speaking, were about how do we make it faster, better, smarter, and quite frankly, darker. Hmm. Interesting. There was there was a real appetite to make it as dark as we could take it without taking it fully out of that family art. How far mm-hmm. can we push a show? That is appropriate co-viewing is a big term for them. Co-viewing, yeah. appropriate co-viewing, but at the same time is dark enough that it gets in an adult audience. Hmm. And I think calling it Big Thunder was the first step. <laughs> sure, that's an adult. We're gonna audience. we're gonna trick a lot of people with that title. <laughs> um, so what did you guys do? Like what? How did you dip back into the script to push it a little further? Well, as a writer, when they tell you you can go darker, that's really a blessing. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the worst thing as a writer is when they come in and go, you got to clean this up. We got to make it less dark. We got to make it more sure. fan. We got to make it more sort of homogenized for, for families. This was, this is a really great situation because I think quite frankly, the version I had in my head was a little bit darker. Mm-hmm. So for them to suddenly come in and go, that's what we're looking for. It was, it was kind of a, a dream note to get. And the answer is you get to make it darker in a few ways. One is on the character side where suddenly you get to have more complex, more ambiguous characters. Right when I think family viewing, I think more clear good and evil, more clear black and white. Mm-hmm. When you get to take something in a darker, more adult place, you have characters who you are less clear about whether they're on the good side or the bad side. You have characters who even your heroes are you know more conflicted, who have more bad in them, uh, or at least you know fall to temptation a little bit more than the characters you might have in a, a more traditional family mm-hmm. show. So I think we were able to do that effectively. And then on the the sort of the set PC action side, you just get to have higher stakes. You know, it's not a question of more violence. But the threat of violence, which which certainly gives it the stakes that you just can't do when you're not worried that someone's going to get hurt, when you're not worried that, you know, that no one's going to get bloodied. Uh, and so I think the stakes are very real. The stakes of bad stuff happening are, are really huge in this. And those are all things that were allowed to go as far in the direction we took them because those notes are early in the process. Hmm, that's great. Um, before we talk about some more of that feature stuff. Yeah. Did you do much research? I did. Well, here's the thing. It's it's a medical procedural in some sense, yeah. right? There's a medical procedural engine that kind of drives the pilot a little bit because it is about a New York doctor who's you know out in the West and hired by this mining magnate to essentially be the town doctor. Uh, I know nothing about anything really, but the thing <laughs> I know the least about uh, is frontier medicine. <laughs> so 
I had to... Worst Jeopardy category. Yeah, I, I'm really bad at frontier medicine. So I had to do a lot of research. We, we did a lot of... I, I found some books online that sort of talked about it. And that gave me a really good ground to, to build off of for the pilot writing. And then once we were greenlit to, to actual production, we got some amazing experts in. We had people who specialized in frontier medicine. Uh, and also just really bad doctors who just didn't know modern stuff. We had them come in and give us advice. Frontier medicine was terrible. Sure. They knew nothing. Well, but you're Do you also... Do how many times I would have died in the front... <laughs> That's the other thing that struck me in this process. I assume you have all the asthma. I don't... I Miraculously, I don't have asthma, and I'm not lactose intolerant. I think the, the most... Obviously, the medical stuff is not why you tune in, and mm-hmm. quite frankly, it's probably not even why you stay tuned. There's No, I mean, like, there's so much more fun, character-driven, mythology-driven stuff going on. The medical procedural stuff, I think, to me, hopefully grounds you in some kind of structure that you can get familiar with week to week. But I think also, to the extent we get it right, makes the show just feel grounded in general. We have so many big, crazy, supernatural things happening. I just hope that everything everything on the medical side feels real and indeed is based on real stuff and makes us feel like a, like an authentic piece of sort of Western mythology mm-hmm. that suddenly goes off in crazy supernatural directions. Well, and the other thing that goes along with it grounded is the family dynamic. I mean, amazing. this could be a modern family, uh, but the specifics of their lives uh, are so, you know, you unroll them so well. But that's, but that's like a Spielberg. them in this time. That's oh, a Spielberg absolutely. movie, right? Every great, or yeah. at least the Spielberg movies, you know, of the 80s and right. early 90s. No, I, I think those, what I responded to and what so many people respond to, to those Spielberg movies, other than the fact they're just brilliantly shot films, it's ordinary people, ordinary family dynamics set against an extraordinary backdrop. Yeah. Um, and and in, honestly, even the later a movie like War of the Worlds, I mean, it's the same thing. Yeah. Father Son story set against alien invasion. This is a really, hopefully, universally relatable family story set against an extraordinary backdrop. Mm-hmm. Um, and hopefully, that grounds it, and hopefully, it makes it feel like it has some of that Spielbergy DNA. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we're also very lucky in terms of casting. We got because the hardest thing to cast is a kid. Mm-hmm. Uh, as a, as a former child actor, I'm aware of this. <laughs> Uh, and we, we got an amazing, amazing young actor named Pierce Gagnon, mm-hmm. who uh, your listeners may know from Looper. Oh, sure. He is that the kid's ra- unbelievable. He's the Rainmaker. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He is. And he's, he's uh, in addition oh, to man. being a brilliant actor, just an incredibly uh, scary human. I remember we were, once we cast him, I was leaving ABC, ABC's offices with him and his mom, and we were sort of at the elevator banks. And he's standing there, and he looks up at, like, one elevator, and he just kind of points at it, and he goes, that one. And then it goes, ding! No. And I literally, I looked and I was just like, dude, you are the Rainmaker. <laughs> and I swear to you, Pierce just looked up to me and went, don't make me angry. <sighs> and so he's, he's like this brilliant but genuinely terrifying kid yeah. who knocked it out of the park in this pilot. That's and turned in acting that would have been impressive for someone at, at any age, much mm-hmm. less seven and, seven and a half. Yeah. Uh, but that, he was a huge part. Uh, of why it worked. Oh, it has to be. I mean, and also, you know, I think we've been talking about this a lot with a lot of the folks who have pilots. Uh, I think people are finally starting to realize how important casting is. Yeah. You know, you have to get that special chemistry. Um, how was that process for you on this pilot? Casting? Mm-hmm. It's great. It's great. Mm-hmm. It's fun. It's crazy. You know, my, my background is mostly as an actor, less so as a writer. The yeah. writing is newer to me. So it was fun to be on the other side of it and fun to see actors come in. Sure. Um, Did that give you any special insight or... Yeah, it made me yeah. think I, I don't know why I didn't uh, book more <laughs> is what it made me mystify. <laughs> I should be huge. Uh, no, it, it made me... It, you come at it with great sympathy for the actors when you've been doing it for as long as I have. Uh, there are a lot of talented actors out there. We saw a lot of amazing people. It is no mystery why it is difficult to book things as an actor because there's just a lot of talent out there. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it also made it just for for me as an actor. It's amazing how much of a difference it makes when you come into the room as like a nice menschy guy. Mm-hmm. Like when people come in mm-hmm. and they're just kind of dicks, it affects like regardless of how good the read is. Everyone in the room kind of sure. goes, "I don't know if we can live with this person if this goes eight seasons." Whereas Absolutely. people who come in are just really like nice and laid back, you, you, you start, even before they read, rooting for them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it makes a huge difference. And indeed, everyone we ended up with in this pilot is just like the nicest. It is the nicest group of actors you have ever seen. Well, the, with the exception, obviously, of Young Pierce. Right, who's a monster. Who is a monster and a diva. <laughs> yeah, a little Beyonce um, there. <laughs> but that is, that's the advice we hear for writers going out for staffing, too, is, you know, 
be nice. That's number one. Be yourself. And if yourself is nice, great. Yeah. <laughs> if it's not, and if it's not, then pretend. just pretend. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know about be yourself. I'm not really into just be a nice guy. Yourself, yourself is that's fluid. True. You're right. You're uh, right. But no, it's it, the thing about the, the casting process that's so much different than features casting is the timing. Mm-hmm. Features casting, you're trying to find who's available and kind of build things around that. TV, it's a race. Who's got them yeah. first? And the thing that's most amazing to me is the kind of the groupthink mentality where if someone gets an offer for something else, immediately we want them. Crazy. And it's not always... Te- we were very lucky that we didn't fall prey to this, but I just I saw it firsthand and it's kind of remarkable where someone will get an offer and then everyone loses their mind. Wait, who did, when are they testing? Can we get them in sooner? We got to get them. They have an offer at CBS. Wow. If they have an offer at CBS, you know what that means? That means we should be giving them an offer. And you sort of step back and go... Okay, maybe they're right for that show. <laughs> right, exactly. It also tells you, and I know, I know this show's mainly directed at, at, at sort of writers, but for actors, it, it shows you how important it is to have a strategic agent who knows the value of getting an offer, even if it's not something you want to do, even if it's not something you think you're going to do. Yeah. Because the, the heat that's generated by a single test offer is remarkable. Yeah. And it very quickly, it very quickly sort of turns into this feeding frenzy where everyone's giving you offers, and, and it, we saw it multiple times on this. That's so- uh, the, the town has a herd mentality. I mean, it applies to writers, too. Sure. And we, we were very lucky that we were kind of the first ones to make offers to some people in this process and mm-hmm. start that feeding frenzy. And That's great. We, we were lucky that we were able to hold on to some of those people awesome. who wanted really badly. Yeah, are the people, is the cast you wound up with, and I know you're not going to say no to this, but I think there's some wiggle room here. Yeah. <clears throat> is the cast you wound up with, you know, the characters as you envision them, did these actors bring something you didn't expect? To no, them? well, th- I mean, this is, it's a great cast, mm-hmm. and the dream as a writer is to get someone who makes the part a lot better than you wrote it. Absolutely. Uh, and more often than not, you, it's hard to find someone who can just do it the way you imagined it, and mm-hmm. if they just do it the way you imagined it, you go, all right, thank God, that's kind of how <laughs> I pictured it. Uh, I would say with with almost no exceptions, uh, we, we got a group of actors who elevated the material. Fantastic. You know, I think especially of Alex Hassel. Uh, who's playing Abel White, our sort of, mm-hmm. our lead maybe villain, maybe not. We don't know what's going on with him. It's a neat character. Uh, and he really, uh, I feel like on the page, I probably did the worst job with his character. <laughs> Why? It, in the sense that he was the least, uh, I think, distinct. Okay. I think he had the most, which is not necessarily a bad thing as a writer to give your actors room, mm-hmm. but I think he he was the one where there was the most room for an actor to come in and really create something. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Alex came in, and we'd seen so many actors, and everyone had really different takes. Some of them were amazing. But Alex, a uh, young British actor, he's an anonymous and really talented, came in and just blew us all away. Came in with a, a totally original approach. It was completely off the wall and insane and just great. But and you sometimes have to wonder if that's going to work in this world, too, which you don't know until you kind of get everyone together, right? We still don't know. We still don't know. I, I think it works, but you know, you'll you'll tell me shortly. Uh, I think it I think it worked great, and ultimately, you don't need you don't really know until the table read, mm-hmm. uh, and that's why you, you know you see all those deadline stories where it's like so and so, which is I can't even imagine. It's crazy this year too. There were so it's many. so ins- I, as an actor, I can't even imagine what it'd be like to get to that table read, and then I was so lucky as an actor that I never you know got far enough to get to a table read. So you know, I, I was I was blessed. We we had our table read and all the actors go in kind of well aware that there's a possibility they don't survive. So there's mm-hmm. there's a nervous energy in the room, but we had a great cast. No one was replaced. Everyone did an amazing job. Network walked away from that table read going great. thrilled. That's really great cast. Go get them. Go make an amazing pilot. Awesome. Um, but Alex Hassel really, Alex Hassel was exactly how you want to go into an audition. Mm-hmm. Just took a huge risk, made some crazy broad wild choices that could have gone very very poorly. Uh, and every single one of them worked, and versions of every single one of those choices wound up in our final cut. Wow, that's cool. Uh, and affected affected how we revised them on the page. Sure, I would imagine. And yeah. that's that has to be a great feeling. It's now you're finally writing for someone. You know that this guy can bring so much to it. Sure, uh, sure. So you get to play a little bit. Yeah, but I mean, with every with every character, it's right. different. I mean, you know, one of the other things with a western is how do you take archetypical western characters and not make them stereotypes? Mm-hmm. You know, we have Selena, who is a sexy Latina barkeep. Well, we've seen that 80 billion times. How, you know, and, and certainly on the page, I did my best to make it an original, fresh-feeling version of that mm-hmm. character. But a big part of why I think that character works in the actual pilot is Ana de la Rivera, um, this amazingly talented Mexican actress who was in Nacho Libre and Cowboys and Aliens. And she came in and just made it so authentic and grounded that suddenly you go, oh, okay, that's a lot better than what Jason wrote. 
Um, and, I, and, I think and that's that, a good feeling for a writer. Like, I think writers yeah, need absolutely. to realize that. Absolutely. Like, that's what we want. Absolutely. And I think the other, the other lesson of a pilot like this is not to be too tethered to uh, an original conception of a character. The character of the lead, lead guy, Dr., Dr. Gavin Kelly, was not written as an Irish character. Mm-hmm. You know, it was written as a New York doctor. And we cast this amazingly talented Irish actor, Ed McLean, who came in and played it Irish. He used his own accent. Mm-hmm. And it just worked. He just did a great job. Awesome. That's great. So, and the fact that ABC was so willing to kind of roll with the punches and be flexible and, you know, accept something like that was huge. Let's talk about some of this stuff uh, that we've touched upon. So, you you were a child actor. I was. And, and a young adult actor. I'm right? still an actor. Yeah. I'm, st- I'm an actor who's not had any time to go out and act, yeah. Uh, where did the writing come from? When did that start for you? The writing came out in a really strange way. I- I'd been acting since I was seven, and... I really hadn't thought about screenwriting too much, uh, but I was in my junior year of high school, and I was starting to think about colleges, and I really wanted to go to Columbia because I wanted to stay local and keep acting, mm-hmm. and I thought, if I'm going to get in there, i got to convince them that I'm really smart. And so I did an internship uh, at a place called the Global Information System, GIS. What is that? GIS is an independent <coughs> government-level intelligence service. So essentially, it is a, it's a second opinion for government intelligence agencies. Mm-hmm. So it's like a think tank. Like a think tank. Right. But it's only, you can only subscribe if you're a government agency. Mm-hmm. So their subscriber base is insane. I mean, it was like yeah. everything from Marine Corps to Syrian Defense Ministry. Oh There's a very broad subscriber base, which also meant that you had to be somewhat unbiased, or at least try to be. Mm-hmm. And I was super interested in the Middle East, super interested in politics, as I still am. And I thought, well, oh gosh, I'll go do an internship here. That'll look amazing on the college. Everyone will think, man, that's so cool, and I'll, I'll just go and get in. So I went and I, I did an internship there uh, in between junior and senior year of high school over the summer in D.C., uh-huh. and ended up having a really cool experience and got promoted to doing intelligence analysis for them and ended up being their U.N. correspondent by the end of it. What? Which was great, which was really neat. And uh, so I, I, through that, met this kind of extraordinary, kind Iranian opposition leader, uh, a guy named Assad, who was just the sweetest... I don't know if you've ever met an Iranian opposition leader, but this Possibly. was the most... You haven't been to my dinner parties. I have not. But as Iranian opposition leaders go, he was, you know, the most <laughs> adorable. And so... But you know, he's a brilliant He's a brilliant guy who runs an amazing foundation, and, and I did an interview with him. But the problem with the interview was he was not a great English speaker. Mm-hmm. And so he would say things like... He was trying to explain to me that, uh, you know, if we backed the opposition, the country would not fracture into ethnic sectarian divisions. And so he said to me, he said, Jason, let me tell you something. Iran is like marble, not a cake. And I said, you know, I get where you're... No, I get where you're coming... Here's the deal, Assad. If people hear this, they're going to they're gonna think marble cake. And he said, uh, tell me something. What is this marble cake you speak of? And I said, you know, it's a dessert. It's delicious. Don't even worry about that. We're going to tweak it a tiny bit. And he said, write what you want to write. I said, what do you mean? And essentially he gave me carte blanche to fake the interview, to write his responses in addition to my questions. You know, I knew his policy positions, sure. and it was, and I had to show it to him before he published. Yeah. But that was my first time writing dialogue, That's and so I got completely carried away with it. I turned him into, you know, Andrew Shepard and the American president, <laughs> and it was just these big, overblown statements about liberty and freedom, and it was out of control. Oh, and I, God. being an idiot, it did not occur to me that people would read it and potentially respond to it, which is what happened. And so he got this this very positive feedback, and as a result, was invited to speak in person at an event in New York, and. He thought this was the greatest thing ever, and I said, you know, no, this is going to be it, because they're expecting this, <laughs> exactly. and they're getting marble knot cake, and he said, just write the speech, and so I got a speech right, and came in to write the speech, and went to see him deliver it. And, and how old are you at this point? This point is probably freshman year of college now, okay. so I'm 18, 19, and he, he, you know, killed it, the guy was a, a performer, Sure. And, but I had not anticipated the Q&A portion of the evening, and so, of course, that came up, and the third question, I swear to you, third question, the guy raised his hand and said... I'm a big believer in you in the movement. My only concern is if we back the opposition, the country may fracture into ethnic sectarian. And you can just see Assad's <laughs> eyes light. He's just like, let me tell you something. I'm literally trying to, I'm like, please don't. Let me tell everybody something. I'm like, don't. Because do Iran is like marble, not a cake. And you, at that moment, just saw everyone in the room kind of go, cake. <laughs> and that's when I thought, I would like to be involved in writing in an arena with less dire consequences for fucking up. And that's what I wrote my first script on. I wrote a script based on my experiences working for GIS called Pacifica. A uh, feature script? It was a feature script. It it was like the firm in high school. 
was a kid who went and worked for a, a spy agency as an internship like I had and goes back and suddenly can't shake the feeling he's being watched. Mm-hmm. And it turns into a thriller from there. And, and it was That's hilarious. It was not a great script. It was the first time I'd ever written a script. Sure. But the idea was fun and big and it, it got me... It and got you, me motivated to actually write screenplays. Yeah, and you sort of knew the language of screenplays from having acted. I would imagine. Like, yeah, yeah, you, no, you I know. I know these are things are supposed to look like. You know how a scene is supposed to look. I, I my issues were not formatting. Mm-hmm. I, I knew, I, I knew how all this was supposed to look. I knew how it was supposed to feel. You know, in broad mm-hmm. terms, uh, I didn't have a great grasp of structure at that point. Mm-hmm. I didn't, you know, I just didn't have the tools that you develop just right. from writing a lot. Sure. So is that how you started to learn that stuff? Just yeah. through doing it. Through writing a lot, and I also, I'd gotten Final Draft, mm-hmm. and Final Draft, when you buy it, it came with a little Sid Field tape, and that taught me basic oh three-act structure. Hilarious. And I sort of, went, I, I like to know the least amount of information I need to to dive into something. Like, I want to know just enough so I don't kill myself, but yeah. not so much that I'm, I'm overly shaped by the way other people have done stuff. Yeah. And so I, I watched the three-act structure deal, which was, you know, invaluable, mm-hmm. and then just started watching all my favorite movies again and breaking them down, yeah, which, by the way, I'll still do. Mm-hmm. You know, if I have a pitch or I'm building an original thing and I'm going, how do, I, how do I crack this? I'll go, what does this remind me of? And I'll sit down and watch a movie and break it down and go, oh, I see how this, they did this and hmm. see how I could tweak it and do my own kind of spin on things. Absolutely. Uh, but yeah, that's essentially smart. that's what I, I taught myself. Um, I did go to Columbia for cinema studies. They don't really teach you how to write a movie there. Do they not have, like, screenwriting classes? They have screenwriting classes, and I had one or two professors who were, like, nice enough, um, particularly mm-hmm. a guy named David McKenna, who was a film professor who was just awesome. Um, but it, it's less about teaching you how to write movies. It's more film critique. Mm-hmm. It's more courses that Theory are really criticism. valuable if you ever want to teach film at Columbia, but not super applicable to the actual business of, of film. Sure. Um, so it's it's a lot of super. Prote- That's interesting. You use the term mise en scène a lot at Columbia. Sure. A lot of mise en scène. Well, and I would imagine. I mean, that is valuable stuff. Like that gets Ish. It goes into your brain. It kind of does. Believe it or not, you probably use it. You know how often I use mise en scène. <laughs> not that. Listen, no, now you're not directing. Right. I, this is true. Although something tells me, even when I'm directing, there's not going to... You're not going to say I think if I turn to my DP and say, let's have a conversation about the mise-en-scene here, I think he's going to punch me in the face. And and would be right to do so. And rightfully so. Uh, So no, for for me, the the best thing I can say about Columbia is that it gave me a a forum to talk about movies seriously. Hmm. You know, not that I didn't get to talk to, you know, other actors and family and friends about it, but suddenly you're in a situation where... You could, in a very serious way, for an hour or two, have a really earnest conversation about movies. And granted, they want to talk about, you know, Battleship Potemkin, and I wanted <laughs> to talk about Raiders and Star Wars. Right. But uh, it was, it was, I think it was probably valuable to be in a forum like mm-hmm. that. Although I, I did try to drop out, and it didn't work. <laughs> didn't take. Well, no, because I, I wanted to drop out after freshman year, mm-hmm. and I took a year off to, to do a short film and then did a festival circuit with that. Uh, but I, I told my mom when I finished that year off that I had news and that I was dropping out to pursue writing and she said that's fine I love you but just be aware that if you do that I will I will kill your father <laughs> which I said at the time felt unfair because he had not been involved in that decision and she said I know that but I also know that you love him <laughs> which was true and you I assume not met my mom my mom is the sweetest lady in the world, she's adorable. If she's listening, hi, mom. She's very sweet, but perfectly capable of murder. Sure, not even a question. She does, and she's told me she's capable of murder. She told me that I watch that movie. She warns me sometimes. She's like, if you need me to take someone out, I can take them out. <laughs> That's where you clearly she's, get she's your, a powerful, killer instinct. She's a, clearly she's a powerful four and a half foot tall Jewish lady. <laughs> um, when did you start getting paid for this stuff? When did you start getting you get made- paid? Yeah. I when need did a new you start agent. Making some some traction. When did you get an agent who would represent you as a writer? So my first my first paycheck as a writer mm-hmm. uh, was shortly after I wrote uh, I'd written a short film, the one that I took that year off from school to pursue. Mm-hmm. And what was the content of that short? The short was about uh, two and I acted in it too. It was about two NYU film grads who were coming off a very successful short film, uh, student film rather. They had a very successful student film, kind of riding the wave of Brokeback Mountain. Uh, they made a drama about two high school wrestlers who fall for each other and refuse to fight called Headlock. And it's the two days before they go pitch their giant action movie to Warners, and I am sort of a disaster and ruin the whole thing. 
Um, and uh, it was a lot of fun to make, and we got a nice response to it, and ended up premiering at Cannes. And it was this. It was, it was a dream way to kind of yeah. get into the business of writing and filmmaking. But off of that, I then had an agent back in New York who uh, set me up with my first writing gig, which was uh, a movie. I won't say the name of the movie. It was a rap comedy. It had been done by a number of guys from Fifty Cent's G Unit, yeah, and they had the funniest guys, the, literally the funniest guys on earth, because no one knows comedy <laughs> like G Unit. <laughs> um, and they they had made a film that was about a a rap music video director who was attempting to break into features, and the idea was you know that it was, this is his big comedic artistic journey. But they finished filming the movie and edited it and realized that it was only about 45 minutes long. Oh, my God. And so... So you were brought in to write half a movie? So what they said, the interview was, we, we, we need another 30 minutes. However, we don't have any real money. We can't do any shots. We have, like, one hotel room. But we can't do... We can't afford to go running around and do exteriors or any kind of big, you know, camera moves. We have our cast. We have a room. And we need 30 minutes. Figure it out. And so I said, well, what if we do it like a, a mockumentary? We'll turn it, we'll do a, we'll just shoot 30 extra minutes of interview footage and we'll intercut it throughout the film. And that's what we ended up doing. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that was, that was my first gig was writing that. That's I think cool. I was paid $400. Fantastic. And it was great. I mean, I, I, I remember I'd written a scene for one of the rappers who will go unnamed where he's being interviewed about this fictional music video director and doesn't, is not aware that it's for a documentary. So the documentarian is going, what you know? What's it like working with so and so? He's going, listen, man, uh, East Coast West Coast is dead. Let it be dead. Like I ain't saying anything. Like no, no, no. It's a calm down. He's like, I'm getting out of here. Like no, no, no. It's a, it's a, it's a documentary. He's like, for real. And the minute he realizes it's a documentary, and the film turns hyper articulate, and is quoting Aristotle and Henry David Thoreau. And I remember getting the call from that particular rapper's entourage, one of his people, who said, listen. So and so rapper loves the scene. He thinks it's you know hilarious. And I said that's great. I wanted it to be hilarious. And he said he got one question. He wants to know who Aristotle is. What was amazing about that question was think about the think about all the things that had to happen for that call. First of all, him not knowing Aristotle, then everyone around him not being like we can Google this, and then him being like no no no, call the writer. <laughs> Maybe he made it up. But the most amazing thing I think to me was that. He knew Henry David Thoreau. Sure. Aristotle was the weak link in that impenetrable intellectual chain. Really? Oh yeah, yeah, God. no, I love Thoreau. That's fantastic. Tell me, tell me more about this Aristotle guy. So that, that was my first gig. That's amazing. That was my first gig. I got paid almost nothing. And, uh, and I can't imagine this brought you uh, a ton of attention. That's how, I got, I, that's how I got Ice Age. <laughs> Directly off of that. No, that film did absolutely nothing for right. me other than make me realize I needed a new agent. But it, it is one of those things, and I think we all kind of go through this, is you, know, you do the thing that's in front of you, and you do it the best you can. You have to have a happy warrior attitude to this. Absolutely. Totally unpretentious. Whatever... Th- Whatever they're willing to give you, you just go, done, I'm there, yeah. let me find a way to make it great. Yeah. You likely will not succeed right. at making that particular thing great. That's part but of learning. Suddenly you're a working writer, suddenly you have a paycheck, suddenly you have a great story to tell people the next time you see them. <laughs> exactly. You go, yeah, I did something, but it's the biggest piece of crap. Oh my God, let me tell you what happened. Sure, that story would kill in a meeting. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you just, you want to, nothing better than a self-deprecating story that also conveys someone on earth paid you to write something Absolutely. somewhere. Um, so... You know, that that did not do a lot for me other than make me feel like, okay, I, I got paid as a writer, now let's go do something good. Uh, what really changed things for me was a spec I wrote. Mm-hmm. I wrote a spec called The Last First Time. Feature. A feature, okay. romantic comedy, uh, about a guy trying to lose his virginity before a meteor hits the world and destroys all life as we know it. Mm-hmm. And that spec uh, changed my life. Uh, I had, why, why do you think this was the one that clicked for you? How did it, you know, what what was in you in this script? Uh, or what was part of the process of this script that made this the one that worked? There were a few things. One is that it was my second feature. Mm-hmm. So I'd, I'd had the experience of Pacifica kind of working out the kinks and mm-hmm. teaching myself not to be such a sucky writer. Um, and I think the other thing is it was just good. It was a heartfelt script. I mean, I sort of, the the idea of that script to me came from, you know, I, I wanted one of those great movies that for me is like a Love Actually or When Harry Met Sally that when you're just having the worst day ever, Pretty Woman, you just pop it off the shelf, you watch, and everything else kind of doesn't feel so bad. And so I thought, I, I desperately want a movie like that, where it seems like the world is ending, it seems like it's all over, but maybe just possibly it isn't. 
And that was the launching point for, for last first time. Mm-hmm. You know, take that in a, on a grand scale. Uh, and I also thought if, in fact, the world was ending, what would an, a normal teenager do? Uh, and, you know, the, the kind of the, the sort of the twist is early on in the script that the girl he wants to be with is convinced the world is not ending. She's the one person who doesn't buy it, which it also seemed to me if that was me, that would be the girl I would pursue. Like that, it would be the one girl who's like, yeah, no, it's not ending. Really Great funny. try. But and so I, that was it. I mean, I, I wrote I wrote that really quickly. It was, you know, a passion project. And I was very lucky that I just I just switched to a new agent at the time. Uh, which actually happened more because of the acting than the writing. They, they <clears throat> felt like, okay, we have something that proves what you can do as a writer and is a great way mm-hmm. to, to sort of get you generals and hope to get your first job. Mm-hmm. And, and so what did you, did you go and start pitching on existing things? Did you start pitching this movie? Did you start pitching other Well, I, wanted, I was hoping this movie would get made. And sure. we, got, we got really close. We actually we set the movie up with Jonathan Lynn, who did My Cousin Vinny Directing, and Echo Lake Productions, an awesome production company that I still really love. They were going to produce, and sort of it just fell apart because of a variety of things. But it, it got me on the radar of some people. Mm-hmm. And I, at this point, I was still in my senior year of college. Oh, Jesus. So I couldn't How really... How dare you? I was well, but I, I'd been lucky because the acting stuff had get, put me in a position where I could meet an agent earlier. Yeah. Um, so I was I was blessed because of that. But because I was still doing school, they didn't really send me out hmm. for a lot of meetings. I couldn't mm-hmm. run around to stuff, uh, and I was doing a play at the time too. So there's just a lot of things going on that sort of you know didn't put me in a position where I could make the most of that spec. Hmm. Uh, but once I graduated, WME really snapped into gear, and I started taking meetings. And the first thing I got off of that script was a Nickelodeon uh, original movie called Rags. Uh, it, was a t- it was a TV movie musical retelling of the Cinderella story. Okay. With a, it was gender reversal, male lead, and a hip-hop theme. <laughs> you became the hip-hop guy. Well, I think clearly when you think, <laughs> when you think hip-hop, you think That's Jason... Th- you want to find the <laughs> Jewiest kid who has ever come out of Manhattan's <laughs> posh Upper East Side. That's that's where you turn. Rags was an assign. Nick Cannon had come up with an idea to do a gender reversal hip hop Cinderella story. Uh, that was also amusing. Not that he was the first. No, not not. <laughs> not. I think everyone everyone in the town was trying to crack that gender reversal hip hop <laughs> Cinderella idea. Nick just got there first. Sure. Uh, and so Nick had written a treatment. Oh, okay. That was uh, you know went out to a bunch of writers. It was okay. an open assignment, and I went and pitched and. Was lucky enough to get my first real gig. That's fantastic. And so and I wrote wrote that, and that actually came out, got made, yeah. and very very lucky that happened. And that is another one of those like it. it it's funny, like you're 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 a young guy, but you've had the career that we all I'm fourteen kind of go through. You know, where you do this thing for four hundred bucks, and then you do this thing that you know you're. It's not your passion project. Yes, but it's a great opportunity. Um, so what? What came next after that? Were, were features a little more open to you now that you had this credit? I, I then got a phone call. As I, was in, as I was finishing Rags, I got a phone call from Fox Animation about interviewing to be a story supervisor or something weird. Mm-hmm. And I told my agent that sounded like a terrible job and it sounded not at all like me. And he said, well, just you know, take the meeting. And so I said, sure. And the day before that meeting, I got the phone call from the vice president of the studio who said, we're very excited to sort of have you come in tomorrow. Hmm. But uh, we've not been completely upfront with you. Uh, no such title exists. It's made up. We're actually going to do a fourth Ice Age film. Has not been announced. And we're interested in you coming on board to, uh, to write with us. Would you, would you be interested? And I said, you know, of course. And they said, you know, have you seen the films? And in, in Big Thunder fashion, <laughs> I had not seen any of the films and said, yes, I have. And they said, do you like them? And I said, no, I, you know, I love them. <laughs> and they said, what do you respond to most about them? Oh boy! And I, right, well, the only thing you think is every time anyone ever is like from one of those movies on a on a talk show, they always sort of say the same thing, right? They always kind of go the comedy, uh, it's accessible for grownups, but appropriate for children. So that's what I said. I said, well, here's the deal, Karen. The, the comedy, successful for grownups, but same time, you know what? Eh, it's appropriate for children. And she said that is the thing we're the most proud of. And so I watched I watched all three Ice Ages back to back to back mm-hmm. that night. Which is which is something you should really you should you should really do that if you want to get someone to <laughs> to reveal who their who their co-conspirators are. Um, Come on, that first Ice Age was really fun. I actually love the franchise. You just shouldn't watch them back to back to back too much. <laughs> and uh, I like the way you say that. The first one was. Good. I haven't seen the other ones. I I've seen the first one, but of course really you've seen Ice Age Four. 
Obviously. Favorite, Before favorite animated interview. feature of all time. Uh, no, I actually loved the Ice Age films, particularly mm-hmm. the first one. Uh, and mm-hmm. uh, they said, you know, come on in. I interviewed, and that was it. It was I was very lucky. It was a series of interviews. It was, it was a grueling process. Did you have to go in with a story at that point? The, the first meeting was not a story. The first meeting was a general, let's see if Jason's not a mental patient. Mm-hmm. Is he and wearing pants? Is he wearing pants? And I was not. Sure. And that's what so got me again. back anyway. Yeah. Uh, and and uh, they just said, they said, you know, we want to do a fourth one, and we're sort of we're pretty open to different possibilities, but we do we do really want this to be a ocean set voyage. So Tom Rothman really responds to the sea, and I said that's great because I love this. This ocean is the best, <laughs> and they said, yeah, we want to make a pirate, try to make a pirate movie, and come back and pitch us pitch us oh, how you do that. I did see some of it. It was lucky that it happened, and, and what really got me that was the combination of Last First Time, that spec script, mm-hmm. which they read, and sort of got me in the room, and then just trying to pitch a good story, and got hired, and it was an 18-month contract, and I thought, well, gosh, there's no way they could need me for 18 months. That doesn't need Was that. it three years now? It ended up being exactly 18 months, but it was no kidding. five days a week, Yeah, you know, nine to six every day. Uh, it, was, it was a wild experience, and it was, it was great because, first of all, there's... You know, you're not worried about whether or not the movie's going to get made. It's very unusual sure. to start on a project where on day one of writing it, they go, your release date is two years from this July. Right. And you're like, oh, okay. <laughs> well, I guess this better be good because it's coming out one way yeah. or the other. And, well, and it seems, uh, we were talking to Adam Goldberg recently who yeah. wrote on a bunch of these type of movies and he said, you know, because that release date is there, you do the best work you can for as long as you can. But at a certain point, everyone's like, well, this is what we've got. Was that your experience? You know, it... You, I think you're always at risk of that. You're at risk of like just going with what you have to go with when you get to the end of the process. And I, I think there are some instances potentially where that happened. I, I think that that movie, for the most part, we actually we actually ended up going with a lot of stuff that was just the best version. True. The best version, I should say, we, should, we could get through studio. Mm-hmm. Which, when you're dealing with a property that's this valuable as, as it is at this point for Fox, there's an incredible amount of attention paid to everything. And that's a blessing and a curse. Um, but I, I, I didn't feel like we had to make too many sacrifices where it was like, well, it's done. Let's just drop it in there. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's also why I think animated movies tend to be largely so good. Mm-hmm. Um, because you have opportunity after opportunity after opportunity to tweak and change. And yeah. I mean, you're looking at this thing visualized <laughs> for almost two years. Yeah. So y- you have, you, you have the ability to see it all laid out and to tweak in ways that just does not exist in, in a live action film or, or in television. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. But it was, I have to say, as a writer, it's, it's kind of a dream to get to work on a project like that because of how rapid the turnaround is. Mm-hmm. In the sense that you will write a scene and then see a brilliantly talented story artist have a fully fleshed out drawing of it hours later. I mean, we, we had... We had just the most gifted people. We had a guy named Francis Glebus who, he was the story artist who did the whole new world sequence in Aladdin. Wow. To have a guy like that That's really suddenly cool. drawing your scene and go, hey, Jason, how did you visualize this? And you're like, I don't know. You did a whole new world. Like, <laughs> you tell me. I, I defer to you. Um, so that, that, was, that was a great, great experience. And yeah. for, for young writers pursuing opportunities like that, and it's not obviously I, I was very lucky in the way it came to me, but it, it's something that absolutely was, is an ideal way to sort of be introduced to the business because you get to see every aspect of a giant feature film yeah. being made. Uh, and they look for young writers, quite frankly, because we're cheap. Yeah. And, and they're they, not WGA. Animation is not WGA, so yeah. you're, you're working for essentially peanuts. Yeah. And so it's, it's one of those, it's a really rare situation in the business where a young writer with almost no credits hmm. is actually something that a studio will pursue for a giant franchise film. That's a good point. Um, so yeah. it's, you know, it's something definitely that if you're a young writer trying to figure out how you crack into larger feature, you know, studio feature mm-hmm. writing, it's something to talk to your agent about. No question. Yeah. I did not know about it. I was very <laughs> lucky that I had an agent who was aware of it. Yeah. Um, but uh, it was it was great. And I would imagine uh, the, the pace of that, you know, the five days a week and the quick turnarounds, not on the final product, but on each piece of it, uh, has prepared you well or hopefully has prepared you well for television. It, let's hope. Um, but yeah. Do I mean, you feel I, prepared? I mean, like, when this show goes, it's going to be a moving train. So to speak. So to speak. Uh, yeah, I, Ice Age was amazing training. Ice Age felt like what film school should have been. Mm-hmm. 
um, both in terms of just watching people operating like at sure. the peak of their craft, but also in terms of learning how to do things quickly and efficiently. So I, I'm not, I'm, I, I worry about whether Big Thunder will get picked up to series because mm-hmm. it, you know, who sure. knows? You never ABC know. made 12 dramas and maybe three, maybe four will go to series. I don't worry about, you know, what'll happen if it does go to series. That's right. Um, if it goes to series, you know, to the extent I'm involved, I, I feel excited and, and positive and optimistic about the kind of contribution mm-hmm. I can make. Well, that's something I was going to ask you also. You know, you're this is your first TV yeah. foray. You're not going to run the show. I will definitely not be showrunning. Um, and they've they've teamed you with a showrunner. Yes, right? um, Melissa. Was there an interview process? You know, or was it just is it lucky if you two hit it off? Um, in this case. I knew Melissa a little bit before okay. the... Pro- I'm, I'm friendly with her husband, Lev Spiro, who's also a talented oh, sure. director. And uh, so I, I'd met her socially a few times and knew what a lovely lady oh, she was. Uh, and we kind of got to the end of the pilot process, the writing process, and they said, you know, we're close to making this thing. we got to have a showrunner to move forward. And the studio's really high on Melissa Rosenberg, who just signed an overall deal and had Red Widow. And they said, you know, what do you think of her? And it was, for, for me and for Chris oh, Morgan, it was a very easy call to go, oh my god, yeah, let's okay. go, go, go. Yeah, I mean, we've heard we've heard horror stories, but we've also heard, you know... Horror stories about Melissa? No, no. <laughs> Tell, what about you? you? What have you heard? Uh, no, about these pairings, you know, for a, a new writer and a seasoned showrunner uh, can go wrong. You know, they could clash, but we've also heard it go the other way, and I'm, I'm glad it, 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 it's working out. Yeah, no, M- Melissa, Melissa's been great. great. So, I, you know, I... I I hope that she stays with us and then we get to have her show run the show. Sure. Uh, but regardless of that, I, I don't see a version where I'm, I'm show running the series. But right. I certainly hope that I'm involved in it in a big way and, and get to stay on board because it's, yeah. you know, it's, it's been a great experience. Good. Glad to hear it. Yeah. Um, before we wrap up, yeah. what are you watching on television? What movies are you enjoying, even though movies are terrible? Uh, <laughs> what, are you, what are you putting in your eyes that you're getting excited about or that's inspiring you? Uh, my girlfriend and I are obsessed with the following. Love that show. It's just... it's. First of all, it is, it's a cable show. It's a cable mm-hmm. show that happens to be on a network. So what's great about it is it's really, un- in the same way that Homeland, which is another one of my favorite shows, like every other person on Earth, mm-hmm. in the same way that Homeland, you always feel like all bets are off and any character could get killed, any character. Could, I mean, without spoiling it for people who you know, haven't sort of gotten to the end of the following, I think even early in that show, you, you get a sense of, oh my God, anything could happen. Anyone could get stabbed at any moment, uh, which is, is not a traditional thing for a broadcast show. So that part of it, I think, is amazing. The mm-hmm. writing's phenomenal. And how often do you get a guy like Kevin Bacon, sure. who's just the most watchable actor? Kevin Bacon has to do nothing, and I would watch <laughs> him. Like, he's just that good. So I'm, I'm obsessed with the following. Uh, love Homeland. Mm-hmm. Uh, love, like, you know, big serialized television like that. Mm-hmm. And then, quite frankly, a lot of reality TV. Which is serialized Reality, television. Still <laughs> in a different sense. I, I like, I, it helps me turn my brain off after a what, long day what of writing. What is the reality TV Anything on Bravo. Really? Anything on Bravo, yeah. Andy, anything Andy Cohn has brought no. into the universe. I'm very excited. <laughs> I'm very, very excited to see. How dare they let you into television. I know. I know. <laughs> and you'll see a lot of those Andy Cohn flourishes on Big Fun. <laughs> yeah, no, and then in terms of film stuff, uh, I'm trying, you know, it's been a while since I've seen anything... Knew that I was like obsessed with. I feel like I, I rewatched Prometheus. My girlfriend had never seen Prometheus mm-hmm. and had heard like the worst things. Did, did you like Prometheus? You hate Prometheus. I, no, I actually was fascinated by Prometheus. Right. So I really, really liked Prometheus. And my girlfriend had heard all these awful things about it and was kind of. I, I hate to pressure anyone to see anything. And I, I kind of <laughs> pressure her into seeing it. And she's, I mean, she's way too hot to enjoy a film. Like, in fairness to her. like There should not be aliens she's in films way, that she watches. She's just way too attractive <laughs> to really enjoy a film. But she watched it and loved it. And we've been talking about it so much. That, that movie to me is, I watched it again recently too. And it, I, I think that is a really, I wish there were more big tentpole genre movies like that that also don't resolve every question. Mm-hmm. Ask really interesting, provocative, existential questions like that. And it's just a cool movie. I've also been watching a lot of, I'm writing a, a horror, it's not a horror, it's sort of a, th- a ghost thriller mm-hmm. right now, and I've been watching, re-watching a lot of fun ghost thrillers and re-watching The like Ring that. films. The Ring, I, I love. Mm-hmm. I love re-watching that movie just to get a sense. That, without getting too wonky, that the second act of The Ring is so perfect, it's like so perfectly paced, it is the best version of an act two of a thriller. Wow. Where it's just, it's just like, she's, Naomi Watts is on a mission, she's trying to figure out who that girl in the video is, and it's just revelation after revelation after revelation with those with you know every so often you get a, 
a great supernatural visual beat. Like when she's watching, she's watching a frame of, I forget if it's security camera footage or what. I think it's some kind of footage that she's watching. It might be old newsreel. And there's like a fly. Remember that scene where there's a fly? I've never seen it. It's a I'm great scene. It's, you should be too scared. It's really <laughs> scary. She's watching this, this frame of footage and she sees there's a fly and she pauses it. And it looks like the fly's in the footage. And when she pauses it, the fly stops oh, moving. Jesus. But then she looks closer and the fly's wings kind of flutter. And she moves closer, and then the fly flies off into her face, and she's like, "Horrible!" It's great. <laughs> it's just awesome. it's really well structured. And the, the movie I'll that I'm working on is a movie called "Break My Heart a Thousand Times," and it's it's based on a really great YA book by Daniel Waters. Oh yeah, he's um, great. He's great. Generation Dead, yeah. which I also think Generation Dead they're trying to do a TV show. They're developing, I think, for ABC Family. Hmm. Uh, so it's been it's been fun rewatching some of my favorite cool. uh, thrillers for that. That's fun. But one of the fun things about you know writing movies like this is going back and getting to. Rewatch some of your favorite films and kind of pretend you're doing work and you're actually just watching movies. Absolutely. So, what is the state of this new feature? You're just getting into it. No, I'm doing the rewrite now, and hopefully, Fantastic. hopefully, we're going to have director soon. And the goal is to go make it later this year. That's, That's one great. of the virtues of working with a place like Gold Circle, where it's kind of full service. Gold Circle is able to fully finance, and so yeah. when they want to make something, they they go and make it, and they have a kind of a cool distribution setup with Universal, where mm-hmm. if they make it, there's pretty good chance Universal is distributing right. so it's fun and particularly coming off of you know Ice Age and then Big Thunder it's fun to go into something that's a lot darker and a lot scarier and you know just a very very different world and ho- hopefully prove that I can do cool things in that space too but yeah and do you have scripts you know or ideas in your pocket that you can't wait for the moment to pounce on these yeah absolutely Absolutely. I mean, right, I'm, I'm multitasking right now, writing a couple of a sort of studio assignment gigs. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's definitely a few things that have been in my brain for a little while that I'm excited to, uh, to hopefully get out. But I think the goal, and I'm sure other writers kind of pursue this similarly and others might not. The goal, I think, was to pursue a couple of big high-profile projects like an Ice Age, like, you know, to a certain extent, you know, Break My Heart studio mm-hmm. stuff. Sure. Just to prove that I'm a real writer. Absolutely. To prove that I'm a real writer who can deliver big, real, awesome movies, and then hopefully off of that convince people that you know an original idea is something that's a worthwhile investment in, which is a hard thing to do. But I think uh, you know I think hopefully we're getting close to that time, and hopefully we'll get to sell some original stuff in cool. the not too distant future. Well, good luck. I, I look forward to reading. Thank everything you. you do, and and hope the show goes. Uh, no, I'm very very excited about it, and I was so flattered you asked me to come in uh, to come in and chat. This is a blast. Been, I. I yeah. Thank you for being here. Thank you so much for having me, and I hope I hope I get to see you soon. Indeed. Now leaving Nerdist.com.